You're listening to the audio-only version of Soundwriting Pedagogies. Visit ccdigitalpress.org soundwriting for the full web text version of the book. Resounding Bodies, a reflection by Yanira Rodriguez. When I was approached to collaborate on this project, my first question was, what do folks mean by sound writing? I wanted us to consider sound technologies in terms of their political, embodied, and aesthetic implications and potentials. In the introduction and throughout the chapter, we challenge any notion of sound writing as neutral, since sound technologies and consequently sound writing pedagogies are implicated in issues of access, and I'm thinking of access intersectionally here, and in issues of survival, as these technologies are increasingly weaponized against certain bodies. In this collaboration, we specifically challenge the normalizing of sound writing technologies as white technologies and aesthetics by teaching with and upholding the disruptive potential of black and brown sound technologies. Disrupting with the goal of dismantling white supremacy is central to my teaching and my scholarship. As a brown Latinx woman teaching in a predominantly white institution, I understand my body as the first site of disruption. With that in mind, I make it a point to request teaching sessions that would make me the first teacher and the composition course the first introduction new students have to a college classroom. The choice, though seemingly minor, feels significant. For students from the very start to be taught by a woman of color about the connections between composition and social political issues feels like an important, even if momentary, disruption to the status quo. I think of my interventions in the classroom and the tools I use, including sound writing, in similar ways. At a PWI, this approach comes with the risks faced by those of us who push against the sameness of difference models as discussed by Keith Gilliard in Rhetoric of Translingualism, where he argued against the kind of flattening of difference that might ignore that, quote, not all translingual writers are stigmatized in the same manner. And the risks of pushing against multicultural models See Ben's discussion of Vijay Prashad on multiculturalism, set in place to avoid contending with power, racism, and white supremacy. These universalizing multicultural tendencies manifest in almost every class I have taught at Syracuse University, including when I taught with Kendrick Lamar's album To Pimp a Butterfly as a multimodal sound text. I believe these tendencies arise in response to the content of my courses, but are also a product of how that content is mapped onto my body. When I taught with TPAP, my white students' responses to the content raised questions for me about my own access to teach certain sound material and foregrounded the contradictions of trying to recenter tools and materials used and taught in specialized courses. These issues were in part what informed this collaboration with Ben, Michael, and Tim. As a woman of color trying to teach about and against racism at a PWI, I wanted a sounding board to unpack the role of identity in our classroom context. While how to teach toward a shared sense of justice and liberation are a, a continual preoccupation, this time I was responding and being accountable to the space created in the academy by the Black Lives Matter movement, through and for which people are risking on the streets in very material ways. I wanted to learn from my colleagues how their subjectivities inform their choice of materials and assignments, as well as their framing goals and course outcomes. I also wanted to learn about their more informal decisions, what issues, if any, arose, and what adjustments were made on the day-to-day? What were their students' responses to their pedagogy and the content of their courses? 
I wanted to learn about what kind of anti-racist pedagogy was possible specifically through sound writing. But again, wanting to teach with sound was not an abstract decision, but one in direct relation to the BLM movement and how significantly music figures in the organizing as a livening strategy that builds solidarity and upends the status quo. If music is a livening strategy and movement work, teaching with the album and hip hop more broadly is about a livening pedagogy. One where as a teacher, I can be more of myself in the classroom and create spaces for students' various ways of knowing and composing. Teaching with hip hop. As a Latinx woman born and raised in the Bronx in the 70s and 80s, that is, at the same time hip hop, not just rap, was conceived, hip hop for me is very much about place, about landscapes replete with boomboxes, with graffiti reclaiming burnt down buildings, landscapes populated by folk, in the way that composition, literacy studies, and hip-hop scholar Elaine Richardson define folk as, quote, the people who know, who have a special knowledge from their vantage point of the world, from their routine social experiences. Hip-hop for me is about inherently multimodal literacies, about belonging, about a life soundtrack, and about a healing resonance, the feel-good sounds that would rise and permeate our apartment. I grew up in an environment where people, music, performances, language, healing vibrations, and a refashioning via art and clothing existed altogether in an ideological push and pull with, but mostly against capitalism. So when I think of sound writing in relation to hip hop, I'm thinking beyond mere sound production and more about a full spectrum of embodied modes of composing towards specific ends. Grounded in my lived experience, I think of sound as historically located, if no longer in a fixed place as hip-hop moves transnationally, then certainly embodies. That is, I'm interested in the ways racism, ableism, heteropatriarchy, and colonialism intersect and impact certain folks attempting to access and teach with specific sound technologies. Afro-descendant activist and artist Fanny Sosa, whose academic work focuses on embodied anti-colonial strategies of survival, such as twerking, created a sound healing installation titled, I Need This In My Life, that challenges the whitened aesthetics, modes of being, and end goals promoted in academic arts and digital spaces. She highlights several soundscapes from the womb, to chants, to resonance boxes, to water drums, as interconnected representations of black technologies, gatherings, and cultures focused on the healing properties of sound. As she argues for a grounded use and end goal of sound technologies as a way to heal, she also reminds us of what is at stake. She states, quote, Bass can heal as much as hurt. Worldwide, riot police are developing sonic weapons that use high frequencies to intimidate and dissolve dissident gatherings in the public space. The people against whom these sonic weapons are used are largely black, brown, and indigenous folks that manifest against the military-industrial complex ecocidal race to the bottom. Scientific and academic spaces cloud sonic research linked to well-being and healing and fund sound technologies used for surveillance, armament, and policing. Through a close consideration of Sosa's work, we begin to inch toward specificity. For to write about teaching with hip-hop is too broad. It might be better to ask, what does it mean to teach with hip-hop through an embodied hip-hop feminist lens as an anti-colonial healing and liberation project, for example? In the stage hip-hop feminism built, Aisha Durham, Brittany Cooper, and Susanna M. Morris answered this question by naming a feminist approach to cultural knowledge that is fluid enough to be relevant outside of the university. Citing Joan Morgan's hip-hop manifesta, Nobody Knows My Name, they described hip-hop feminism as, quote, 
a feminism brave enough to fuck with the greys. That is, they describe that, quote, hip-hop feminists insist on living with contradictions because failure to do so relegates feminism to an academic project. And as Carmen Kennard warned, citing Hortense Spillers, the risk is the turning of hip-hop, like feminism, into a curricular object, which is directly correlated to the abstraction of forms like hip-hop from people, their history, and their participation in resistance movements. As Spillers wrote, quote, we haven't figured out a way to carry historical memory. The cost of Americanization of equality is to forget. In part, it is this conception of the fluidity of feminism toward creating relevance, the living with contradictions, and the challenging of ahistorical curricular objects that I'm interested in as it connects to sound writing and what informed my approach in the classroom. I interpret their argument about living with contradictions as a critique and not a sanctioning of the current neoliberal capitalist project. Here again is the importance of history because hip hop was conceived as a mode of resistance at the very same time that neoliberalism was sinking in its claws domestically and transnationally. Therefore, dwelling in contradictions is more about meeting people where they're at, attentive to their real material existence because it is only from that real place that resistance is made possible and inevitable. In predominantly white classrooms, this takes on a different meaning and necessitates context-specific approaches that do not end up reinscribing white supremacy, neoliberalism, and a multiculturalism in service of power. What we did. My students and I worked with rapper Kendrick Lamar's album To Pimp a Butterfly in the first year composition classroom in the fall of 2015. For me, teaching with TPAP was about figuring out how hip-hop's elements of resistance those that exist in dissonance with a white supremacist status quo, open possibility to teach about racism in the classroom. But I struggled with what it means to teach with hip hop when the black and brown bodies behind its creative force are largely absent in the institution where I teach. When I started teaching this class, I had been engaged in extensive campus organizing around LGBTQ rights, justice for people with disabilities, and racial, economic, and environmental justice. In connection to the campus organizing that responded to the broader intersectional movement, teaching with TPAP also allowed for a response and connection to Adam Banks's call for what he termed transformational access to technology. According to Banks, transformational access is, quote, genuine inclusion in technologies and the networks of power that help determine what they become, but never merely for the sake of inclusion. Some of the issues that came up in the classroom made me consider transformational access as it relates to some educators' access to teach specific content. When content challenging racism and white supremacy continually figures as marginal, meaning it is not taught at all, or when taught it is subsumed by multiculturalism, then it becomes important to think of specific educators' risks and access to use such content in relation to transformational access. The course was framed around multiliteracies and multimodal composition, and each student was tasked with identifying their home and various community literacies. We moved from textual to visual and finally to audio analysis. The aim was to decenter both English and written language as dominant in composition and explore various modes of knowing and composing. While we moved through the units, I deliberately had them merge with each other. I began the class where we would end, that is with sound. As students made their way into the classroom on the first day, the coup's strange arithmetic was playing. After introductions, I announced the first recurrent assignment. 
Each week, different students would contribute a song dealing with social political issues. While we worked primarily with alphabetic text during the first part of the course, the texts were multi-genre compositions dealing specifically with the intersections of language, place, identity, and class. In order to disrupt the strict divide between the units, students were listening to songs while engaging in alphabetic textual analysis. And one assignment was to translate social political issues discussed in the text into the genre of a protest poster. The visual text unit also included sound and led us more directly to issues of racism. Given the predominantly white composition of the classroom, the multicultural responses to earlier texts, and some of the resistance that arose as we discussed racism, I deliberately chose Tim Weiss's White Like Me and Dave Zirin's Not Just a Game to screen in class because from previous experiences, I have found that white students have been more receptive and persuaded by white people discussing anti-racism. And this approach removes the burden placed on students of color. Interestingly, this wasn't necessarily the case. As I mentioned, all along, students were volunteering song examples for analysis. Besides the coup, I contributed songs from Invincible, Lauren Hill, Janelle Monet, and others. Students contributed songs from artists such as Immortal Technique and Rage Against the Machine. Throughout the class, we were continuously mapping the connections between the units in terms of both content and modality. The first unit was well-received as students were both surprised and excited about exploring their literacies beyond standard English and modes beyond the academic essay. Part of the comfortability for my white students may have been the sense that the literacies each student shared did not exist in fraught relationships to one another. That is, they may have appeared without power dynamics. Once Wise and Zirin as white men critiqued white complicity and challenged honored U.S. traditions like football and the military, cutting into the center of white America's cultural imaginary, the message received more resistance. But even though many white students were resistant to the content, they remained engaged. Yet, when I introduced Lamar's album as text, some students overperformed disengagement and tried to render the content speculative. Another impulse was to align with the arguments being presented, but as something happening at a distance from themselves. In contrast, students of color seemed to open up more, although at times they tempered their commentary. The final unit was an analysis of the entire TPAP album. I assigned several reviews of the album, including rough thesis on To Pimp a Butterfly from Red Wedge. Along with the album, we continued to watch videos and news clips, including Lamar's seemingly controversial performance at the BET Awards atop of a police car, conservative critiques of the performance, and an interview with Lamar where he responded to critiques. We also watched a clip of BLM activists singing Lamar's All Right, as they defended a child from being arrested by police. As discussions touched on respectability politics, the role and uses of anger, the faulty rhetorics of black-on-black crime, and presumed police innocence, we watched Lamar's symphony performance of the song All Right and Nina Simone's performance of Mississippi Goddamn in front of an all-white audience to challenge notions of, I agree with your message, but not your methods. That is, when students felt Lamar's message performed on top of the police car was too much, I played his symphony performance of the song and encouraged my students to think critically whether the message had changed and what made them feel uncomfortable about Lamar on top of the police car versus at the symphony. This unit was meant to lead to the creation of a podcast, but ultimately I assigned a multimodal music review. Some students were showing resistance to the album and the text with one student explaining that he did not do many of the take-home assignments because, as he stated, I'm more into country music. 
I found myself needing to emphasize that the album was the reading for the unit, and consequently the assignments were not optional. My generous read of this moment is students might not recognize a musical genre as text, and there is more work that needs to be done to have students consider music as a form worth analysis. My less generous read is that when he put country music in opposition to hip-hop, that there was something else at stake. That it is not necessarily music that the student is resisting as text, but hip-hop and everything that this cultural form embodies, and more specifically music that has a strong racial justice lens. This less generous read does not come from a generalized assumption about white student subjectivities, but rather from specific comments and identity positions many of the students express during the class. How would we move on to podcasting if students were not first taking Kendrick Lamar's work and the political and social context it raises seriously? What does this mean in a classroom concerned with fostering critical thinking, rhetorical analysis, and multimodal writing skills? Ultimately, I found resistance to the album generative rather than a failure, for the end goal was not to make students like the album, but we needed to spend more time discussing the album for these tensions to crack open and surface. I could have had my students produce a neat podcast but not understand an important text. I wanted to avoid technology as a site for students to hide from the challenges of these discussions. Following Banks, I decided that the class was not about the next technological hotness. Instead of producing a sound writing product, my students sat with the disruption of sound. But what is it that gets disrupted? Disrupting white noise. Quote, at the end of the day, none of us can take the easy way out. Gwendolyn Pugh. In the introduction to this chapter, we discuss white noise as a powerful metaphor for how racism and white supremacy function at institutions of higher learning. And on being included, feminist scholar Sarah Ahmed theorized about the status quo of whiteness in institutional spaces where whiteness is inhabitable and turns into a habit. Ahmed also argued that moving to a space not inhabited by whiteness can both energize and make a person conscious of what they have inhabited. This raises questions about our tools, methods, and methodologies, and in the context of this collection, about both the productive and disruptive potential of sound writing. The danger I identified in the classroom was that if we did not work with disruptive sounds, then sound writing as a pedagogical tool had the potential to uphold and mask a specific white supremacist rationale slash logic. In a disruption to this white supremacist rationale slash logic, Banks' 2015 conference on college composition and communication chairs address forwarded an Afrofuturistic soundscape for the field where technoculture met science fiction and funk. This is also how I understand Pew's reference to that future moment where hip-hop feminism can be of use to us in disrupting the U.S. imaginary. Both these scholars theorize the future in a way that is far from a transcendence above material realities and more of a transcendence through, as Banks stated, the funky, messy, and ratchet of everyday lived experience. While the transcendence that Banks spoke of sounds not of this world, he was asking us to imagine what is possible if we deal with concrete concerns. Dealing with lived experience challenges any easy wrap-up for our songwriting pedagogies. Understanding how sound technologies are implicated in the surveillance, policing, and murder of specific bodies challenges a disposition toward fascination with sound technologies. What I learned for teaching a class with hip-hop was to ask when to teach with sound and if the focus should be a sound product. 
The social movement work and its connection to sound made sound writing relevant for the times, and this relevance extended as I considered the idea of transformational access in relation to content. In trying to determine if sound writing should be produced, I followed Banks' recommendations of incorporating technology only if it helps fulfill the goals of the classroom. Reflections, Michael Burns, where I'm from. I teach courses in composition and rhetoric, multi-ethnic literature, and African-American rhetorics and writings. I am black, and I think that matters in lots of ways, but especially in terms of how students at a predominantly white institution perceive me as an educator. I am the first black teacher many white students have ever had. An informal poll in each class confirms this. And for students of color, I am often the first black professor they have had in college. So my body and politics figure into how students respond to my pedagogy. In my experience, white students in general education classes with no specific racial or ethnic focus are typically fine with me so long as race does not come up. Most are even fine if race and ethnicity are breached from a benign multiculturalist perspective. However, as soon as whiteness is explicitly revealed or critiqued, a white supremacy is called out, most white students display resistance to the idea of shutdown altogether. Black students and students of color typically have the opposite reaction and savor the opportunity to grapple with the topic of race in white-dominated space. Most students in courses focused on multi-ethnic or African-American topics, regardless of race, tend to be more receptive, though a multiculturalist perspective still prevails. And in all cases, there's a need to help students develop more critical understandings of how race impacts all our lives. The prompt I've offered in this collection was first used in a course I taught on African-American rhetorics in a senior-level seminar for English majors. My overarching goals for the class are to have students, one, actively engage texts connected to black Americans' resistance to oppression and acts of liberation, two, consider how black Americans' rhetorical activity can foster more nuanced understandings of the black experience, and three, develop a more critical awareness of the role language serves as an available means to improve the social, political, and material realities of black people. This assignment is my attempt to move toward a more critical pedagogy. I want students to understand that there are aspects of black American language practices that originate before black folks arrived in the U.S. I also want to decenter ideas of language hierarchy and thus notions of deficit so that students are open to the possibility that black American language or African American vernacular English can mean and matter differently than what Smitherman calls the language of wider communication. There's also a goal to convey to students that the black experience does not begin with slavery and that even within the institution of slavery, there are maintained connections to Africa even as those connections have been variously and vigorously challenged. Given my intentions, in the first week of class, students are assigned two central readings, Geneva Smitherman's first chapter and her foundational work, Talking and Testifying, From Africa to the New World and into the Space Age, and Maulana Karinga's chapter in Jackson and Richardson's Understanding African-American Rhetoric, entitled Nomo, Kowaita, and Communicative Practice, Bringing Good into the World. These readings are central to the assignment prompt, so I'll start my discussion of process with a brief analytical summary of each work. In What We Did, I will offer an excerpt of their application from a class discussion on Ms. Lauren Hill's Black Rage sketch, and I will conclude with a few thoughts on reimagining the course in light of sound writing as a pedagogy. Where I'm at. 
Smitherman's first chapter accounts for the sociolinguistic and cultural origins of black language practice in the U.S. She offers, quote, Black dialect is an Africanized form of English reflecting black Americans' linguistic cultural African heritage and the conditions of servitude, oppression, and life in America. End quote. For Smitherman, there is evidence of a trajectory in black language practice that connects the present to an African past. Simultaneously, however, Smitherman notes that, quote, black language is Euro-American speech with African-American meaning, nuance, tone, and gesture, end quote. Here, Smitherman disrupts the idea that black language is derivative of Euro-American speech. Instead, Euro-American speech is but one component of black language practice. Smitherman cites two key dimensions in black speech, language and style, that, while overlapping in terms of how they are evidenced in practice, each extend from the historical conditions of pidgin, learned via cross-language contact, and creole, acquired from birth, language development during enslavement. Smitherman supports this claim with brief analyses of idiomatic expressions, like Nina Simone's truism, it bees that way sometimes, and the historic account of syntactic development from 1619. In accounting for the emergence and development of black language, Smitherman notes the similarities in sociolinguistic processes for all language learners who, quote, attempt to fit the words and sounds of the new language into the basic idiomatic mold and structure of their native tongue, end quote. Still, while Smitherman holds that there are some consistent practices that reveal the direct connection between West African language syntax and idioms and contemporary black language practices, quote, it is also true that the distance between contemporary black language and white American English is not as great as it once was, end quote. Part of this reduced distance is due to the ratio of blacks to whites in the U.S. as compared to Caribbean nations and external pressures on black Americans to, quote, assimilate and adopt the culture and language of the majority, end quote. Even as Smitherman accounts for these pressures that manifest in mainstream institutions, there is also a suggestion that the maintenance of black language practices can, in and of itself, serve as a form of resistance and liberation. Smitherman describes this process as the push-pull, which he equates to W.B. Du Bois's idea of the double consciousness. It is this ambivalent positionality of black Americans that locates the largesse of cultural production and identification. Where Smitherman establishes a framework for understanding the development of black American language practice as a synthesis of West African syntax and European American language, Karinga works towards a general theory of African rhetorical practices that can be applied to the communicative practices of black Americans. Here, Karinga is interested in, quote, using African sources, principally Egyptian comedic text, as a fundamental departure and framework for understanding and engaging African-American rhetoric, end quote. As Karinga advocates for a theory based on African sources, he is first interested in making the distinction between rhetorical traditions that extend from Europe and Africa. Secondly, he notes that this distinction also reveals different intentions in the ways rhetorical traditions have been called into service, which he forwards with, quote, an explicit critique and corrective for the dominant consumer's conception of a rhetoric pressed into the service of a vulgar persuasion, advertisement, seduction, and sales, end quote. Where Karinga presents the critique that Aristotelian rhetoric has been compromised into service beyond the disciplinary interest in the polis, his corrective offers that, quote, the communal character of African communicative practice is reaffirmed and rhetoric is approached as, above all, a rhetoric of communal deliberation, discourse and action oriented toward that which is good for the community of the world, end quote. 
The distinctions Karinga makes in rhetorical traditions here, while stark, do clarify the idea that rhetorical theory is political and thus related to power, oppression, and liberation. The four themes offered in the assignment prompt all reside within Kawaita philosophy, which, quote, defines itself as an ongoing synthesis of the best of African thought and practice in constant exchange with the world that is directed toward the enduring historical project of maximum human freedom in human flourishing times. Though the framework of Kawaita philosophy is positioned as changeable and responsive, it does contain, quote, four enduring socio-ethic concerns. End quote, which include the dignity and rights of the human person, the well-being and flourishing of family and community, the integrity and value of the environment, and the reciprocal solidarity and cooperation of mutual benefit for humanity. End quote. In turn, these socio-ethic concerns correlate with the African rhetorical themes of community, resistance, reaffirmation, and possibility that students are encouraged to apply in their analyses. When placed into conversation with each other, the Smitherman and Karinga chapters offer a specific yet deep set of concepts students can reference for the assignment. There is also a set of organizing principles they can reference, which students can then use to inform their analyses. Given that for most students, this is the first time they will have been required to work with Afrocentric theory, this is also an opportunity to decenter whiteness and Eurocentric theory from the critical approaches to textual readings. This move extends both from my concern for critical pedagogy and addressing the diversity requirements put forth by our university's strategic action plan, which mandate that our instruction should, quote, promote transcultural literacy and cultural competency. What we did. As stated above, the first run of the course was in the fall of 2014 when the Black Lives Matter movement started to gain national attention. There was an outpouring of protest songs, some of which emerged out of the activist swell that manifested after the August 9, 2014 murder of Mike Brown by Darren Wilson in Ferguson, Missouri. If there was one track that set it off for me, it was Ms. Lauren Hill's Black Rage sketch. I played the tune in class and used it as a sample text in light of the assignment and references to Smitherman and Karinga. I'll offer a partial account here of the analyses that came out of our discussion. That Ms. Hill shared the tune for free on her blog and SoundCloud account already positions the song as a sort of offering. In Karinga's terms, this move can be interpreted as a rhetoric of possibility, which, quote, seeks not only to persuade, but to share, to inform, to question, and to search for and explore possibilities in the social and human condition, end quote. Ms. Hill adds a statement to accompany the song's title, quote, an old sketch of black rage done in my living room. Strange the course of things, peace for Missouri, end quote. Hill's allusion to, quote, the course of things, end quote, situates the song as a reaffirmation of the continual struggle, and it immediately connects the personal, in my living room, to the political, peace for Missouri, an example of the community relation that Karinka offers as a component of African communicative practice. As a class, we noted that Hill's song, gets to the essence of black language that combines, quote, Euro-American speech with African-American meaning, nuance, tone, and gesture, end quote. For example, the melody that Hill uses belongs to My Favorite Things, a song composed by Rodgers and Hammerstein for The Sound of Music. While there are several notable versions of the song, two stand out as the most popular. The first is by Julie Andrews, who first performed the song in 1961 and again in 1965 for the movie version of the musical. 
The second notable version is performed by John Coltrane on his 1961 album of the same title. We made the connection that by virtue of her melodic choice, Hill situates herself between white mainstream and black popular cultural versions of the song, right in line with what Smith identifies as the push-pull in black American language practices. In terms of her lyric, Hill repeats the phrase, black rage is throughout, citing the various locations where the rage of black Americans is justified. In the song's opening line, for example, Hill offers that black rage is founded on two-thirds a person. This reference to being viewed as part of a person connects comments Hill previously made in her uh, fifth interlude on her MTV Unplugged 2.0 album and in the three-fifths compromise enacted during the 1787 Constitutional Convention that deemed enslaved people of African descent as three-fifths of a person for the purpose of, quote, determining the state's total population for legislative representation and taxing purposes, end quote. Hill's intentional use of ambivalent lyrics rather than leading to an easy interpretation instead facilitates conversation among readers as a rhetoric of community, whose interpretations become constitutive of the song's meanings, as well as working across the personal and the political as a rhetoric of resistance. A few thoughts to close. This class discussion served as a model for what was expected for the assignment, and I was mostly pleased with the results. In the first run of the assignment in the seminar course, I allowed students to select any text that they thought could work as a subject of analysis according to the prompt. Some students pick speeches like Malcolm X's The Ballad or the Bullet and Ida B. Wells's The Lynch Law in All Its Phases, or works of literature, for example, Alice Walker's Blessed Are the Poor and Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. Two students, perhaps because of the in-class example I discussed above, chose to use music for their analyses, The Roots, How I Got Over, and Childish Gambino's Sweatpants. I proposed a repeat of the seminar for the following year, and I revised the assignment prompt to the version that appears here. However, the course was under-enrolled and subsequently canceled. I decided to convert the course from one reserved for upper-level English majors into a general education offering for all undergraduate students. I also made the choice to have students select a protest song to use for the assignment, and with the encouragement of my co-authors, I decided to also include the option for students to compose with sound. This class is now on the books and can run as soon as the spring of 2017. What difference will it make? Going back to the ideas we raised in the introduction, the choices to use music as a focus of analysis and to use sound writing as a mode to account for that analysis are not, in and of themselves, critical moves. However, if taken on with the intention of helping students make connections between our classrooms and the other spaces they inhabit, these choices can align with critical pedagogy. For my part, I think that examples from popular culture of black language practices in the service of resistance or liberation are just as accessible to students. Two, I think the use of contemporary texts can give credence to the trajectories offered by Karinga and Smitherman. There's the opportunity for students not familiar with AAVE to develop a more nuanced appreciation of the dialect via music produced in the vein of black protest, which can also impact their views on black American experiences. For black students that speak AAVE, there's a space created for needed validation of their language practices within the classroom and the university, both in terms of the potential texts we choose to analyze and in the use of virality and sound as an alternate mode of composition, a critical engagement of black music and black language can send the message that black students belong, that we gonna be all right.
Hi everyone, I'm Ben Kiebrick and I've got some reflections, provocations, and questions for our sound writing piece. Uh, when Courtney Danforth and Kyle Stedman asked me if I had anything for a collection on sound writing, I went and I got some help from my friends. Yanira Rodriguez and I had been talking about Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly and possibly teaching with it. Uh, we had been recently involved with an intersectional movement at Syracuse University, a movement that, through action, was deepening my commitments to anti-racist solidarity, while also opening up some painful awareness of my complicities, and that's a journey that I'm still on. As I prepared to join Michael Burns and Tim Dougherty in Westchester, I was also wondering about how I could develop a pedagogy that was accountable to the movement work that was around me. As I was preparing to teach my classes at Westchester, I was also listening to some Stokely Carmichael speeches, and there's one in particular where he's at uh, UC Berkeley in 1966 that had st stuck with me through the planning process. Here's a little clip. And the question is, how are white people who call themselves activists ready to start, move into the white communities on two counts, on building new political institutions to destroy the old ones that we have, and to move around a concept of white youth refusing to go into the army. So that we can start then to, be, to build a new world. It is ironic to talk about civilization in this country. This country is uncivilized. It needs to be civilized. It needs to be civilized. In this clip, I hear Carmichael saying to me, you want to live in a world without racism, you want to roll back the damage of slavery and settler colonialism, then dismantle the systems your people created, currently support, and benefit from, and restrain your people from murdering more people. The words seem more relevant today than ever, and they guided me as I thought about teaching at Westchester University in suburban Pennsylvania, where 80% of the students are white, a university population that in many ways resembles the community in which I was raised. How do I teach people in a way that is accountable to movements for black freedom and the liberation of all people? Near the end of my first year at Westchester, I was also listening to some Vijay Prashad lectures, including one titled The Problem with Multiculturalism. I'm going to play a clip from that. And we end up learning that really the project of anti-racism is about exposing power and how power so carefully buries itself, and how power likes us to come on stage and dance, and how power likes to come to those events and watch us dance, and how power likes to come on stage before we dance and say, I'm so happy you're going to dance. <laughs> and power likes to finance us doing all those things. And then we go home and take pictures and celebrate it and say, I've done my job. Prashad's The Problem with Multiculturalism also describes a course that he teaches at Trinity College simply called Racism. According to Prashad, the students expect to learn two things, how racism is bad and is often the police, and secondly, how their cultures need to be celebrated. For Prashad, it is especially the second part of this expectation that is central to a multicultural approach, one of three elements of what Prashad calls the new racism, the other two are colorblindness and model minorityism. For Prashad, the multicultural approach demands that we superficially celebrate each other's culture.
But this minimizes or completely erases the fact that some cultures exercise dominance over others. Multiculturalism may help diminish prejudice, but if we understand racism as prejudice plus power, then we see how the multicultural approach perpetuates and masks racial hierarchies. How does an educator make sure that hip-hop does not simply dance for students? That it is not a superficially celebrated spectacle in the classroom, but that it is taught in the context of systemic oppression and struggles for rights, dignity, and liberation. Prashad describes that the students in racism read about racism and multiculturalism, but the project he finds most important is one in which students are assigned a campus building and must do historical research on the person the building is named after. They research all semester long, and then Prashad has them crazy glue their findings to the building. He doesn't give much detail for the assignment, but his analysis of multiculturalism helps fill in the gaps. It is safe to assume that, like most U.S. campuses, the buildings at Trinity College are named after rich white men. The students would be reading analyses of racism and meanwhile learning about how these white men became powerful enough to get buildings named after them. This would provide a local example of how power operates within a color-conscious lens from the class readings, and the final result is made as a public disruption to the silent working of power as manifested in this act of naming. What can we take from this example and apply to sound writing? I titled my first composition course at Westchester University, Composing Ourselves in a Colorblind USA. I assign students texts like Douglas's What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, and work from people like Martin Luther King Jr., James Baldwin, Audre Lorde, Jay Smooth, Tim Wise, and Michelle Alexander. My goal was to start with eras in which the right side of history is clear. Looking closely at these moments, students would then analyze, discuss, and debate moments and questions of contemporary U.S. racism. They could ask themselves, what side are they on in history? and then ask themselves, what side are they on in the contemporary moment? It didn't all work out as planned. About halfway through the semester, I polled students on debate questions that they had written. In response to the question, is the Black Lives Matter movement fundamentally racist, 48% of the students in the class responded yes, and only 11% of the students responded no. They had read Audre Lorde's The Uses of Anger, Michelle Alexander on mass incarceration, and watched Tim Wise break down centuries of white privilege all the way through the Obama presidency. We read article after article explaining how racism is prejudice plus power, but the students voted that BLM was still racist. Over 50% of my course evaluations included comments like, the class was good, but why did we have to talk about racism the whole time? Or, it was interesting, but he sort of wore out the whole racism thing. I witnessed some students opening up and deepening their analysis, but a similar amount closing off, becoming defensive and disinterested, especially as we got to the contemporary moment. I decided to switch up my course the next semester, but still with the goal of being accountable to movements for social and racial justice. In a class around political rhetoric, I used sound writing for my third unit. You can check out the syllabus for details, but the inquiry moved from electoral politics to a broader sense of the politics students encounter in daily life to political disruption through contemporary music. Current events, both hyper-local and global, would help bring us into discussions about structural inequality and white supremacy. 
For the final section of the course, students were asked to pick a song that interrupted and or disrupted political debate, policy, powerful interests, and law enforcement. When I first introduced this assignment, I showed a trailer of What Happened, Miss Simone, featuring a performance of Mississippi Goddamn, spliced in with brief commentary from civil rights activist Dick Gregory and visuals of white supremacist, often police repression of the Southern black freedom struggle. I then read students an analysis of the song from a magazine called Signature, which provides important context, and then I played Brother Ali's Uncle Sam Goddamn to demonstrate how themes and lines are picked up and cited across time and place. And for more on this uh, concept, you can see the palimpsest theory, which is mentioned in our introduction. This became the first example of what could be done through our podcast assignment, exploring the political depth and influence of a song. Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly became the shared text for a week's worth of discussion and analysis, developing an understanding of the specific political potentials and disruptions of music. I assigned All Right and I, and they had to choose one more song to analyze. They also read rough theses on To Pimp a Butterfly from Red Wedge, an article that gets to several political contexts. A group of five students gave many presentations on the article and Lamar. They taught about Lamar's trip to South Africa as he worked on the album, his red and blue Reebok ventilator shoe advertisements, and gave statistics about police violence in the USA. These presentations are one way that I'm trying to leave space in the class so as to not teach about hip-hop, but to facilitate conversation around hip-hop and its political context. The next class period, I played a series of videos to give more context to Lamar and hip-hop, including videos that implicate whiteness and the larger white consumer base for commercial hip-hop. After providing examples through Simone and Lamar, students brought in song ideas and started their analysis, and I gave three in-class tutorials about creating podcasts with Audacity. I also gave students a couple online resources, which are linked in my writing, encouraging them to troubleshoot on their own. During one class period, I created a podcast introduction in front of my students. Most of my students' final products include an intro with a chosen song playing in the background, and then the rest of the episode is the song used like a block quote in writing. A section is introduced, dropped, and then picked up by the student for analysis before moving on to the next clip. As I close this reflection, I'm thinking about conversations I've had with other teachers who also do movement work. I've been thinking about the role of formal education in relation to social justice. What should we ask from our students? Or, more precisely stated, what does our contemporary moment ask of us ethically and politically? What can be accomplished in 15 weeks? While teaching the unit on political disruption and interruption described above, I was looking for a text that might help build a more intersectional approach to racial justice. I was telling Tim about the class and he mentioned Hooray for the Riff Raff to me in particular their Body Electric, which NPR named the Political Folk Song of the Year for 2014. The song and video are beautiful and disruptive, and I screened it for my class. As I researched the band more deeply, I came across an op-ed that Alinda Sagara, the band's lead singer, wrote to folk musicians. Citing bell hooks, she asked them to fall in love with justice. The short op-ed, written in May 2015, opens... People are dying. This is not a lie. Black women, men, and children are dying. Sagara describes where she stands in society in relation to the Black Lives Matter movement, 
a Puerto Rican female folk singer who has been tokenized by the press and described as a voice for the voiceless. But with her ability to reach other folk musicians, she's redefining folk music back to its historic roots in Odetta, Harry Belafonte, and Woody Guthrie, among others. She describes the unheard as distinct from the voiceless, and the role of folk musicians in amplifying the unheard stories of others. To her contemporaries, she says, If you are too afraid to stand up for people who are marching in the street saying, Stop killing us, then you, friend, are not a folk singer. I assigned my students this op-ed, as well as the NPR story, and I think it offered some possible connections to them. Sagar identified the connective tissue from violences that may feel or seem individual. She also calls out and calls in, making clear the responsibility of her peers to movements for social justice. It is all complicated, but it feels like a relevant opening. Since reading the article, I've been thinking about loving justice as a pedagogical goal. I haven't had enough time to let it settle and consider what it would really mean to be guided by the idea, but it seems both inclusive to a classroom like the one I was teaching, while necessarily talking about systemic oppression, necessarily defining justice in our contemporary moment. Perhaps most importantly, it is available as process. Fifteen weeks is not very long in someone's life, but an ambitious goal is that I set up the classroom so that we can all begin to love justice a little bit more deeply. From the World House to the Mad City Where I'm coming from Like Ben, I'm a straight cis white boy from the burbs Mid-thirties, a bit older than Ben, but still often confused for a student I'm teaching back in the same town where I went to high school About a 45 minute drive from Philly Both sides of my family have deep roots here in Lenape country as Irish Catholic settlers from what I can tell, we first came to Philly, and my grandparents participated in the Great White Flight that has for generations directed resources towards suburbs like Westchester and away from communities of color in Philadelphia. I have responsibilities to this place and to be clear-eyed about that history. Ben's invocation of Stokely Carmichael's gut check to white activists helps me to quickly articulate the real work that I feel is demanded of white folks like me in this contemporary moment. But it is also more than that. I've been a music head from day one, and hip-hop was my first true love. It was the first music that I felt I discovered beyond my parents' influence. I remember culling through BMG catalogs, picking out all the cassette tapes I could get for a penny. I chose LL Cool J, Salt and Pepper, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. I also rocked R&B like Belle Biv DeVoe and Biz Markie and at Mary J. Blige. When I finally got a CD player, the first disc I bought was Arrested Development. I think the second one was Tribe's Low End Theory. My political education began with hip-hop. Public Enemy, De La Soul, Tribe, MC Light, Latifah. And as a white boy in the suburbs, I wasn't alone. To me, hip-hop wasn't party music. It wasn't a dance to celebrate culture without a lens on power. It was a dose of reality focused on power, a reality that too often seemed bleached out of my suburban existence. As I began to become more conscious of my privilege as a white man, 
and began to work towards political consciousness and anti-racist solidarity, I spent a few years thinking of my young obsession with hip-hop as appropriation or exoticization, and I'm sure that it was in some ways. But it was also an invitation to solidarity and undoubtedly sowed seeds in me for anti-racist action. In Bakari Kitwana's Why White Kids Love Hip-Hop, he argued that hip-hop offers an opportunity to organize coalitions across difference, and he described white hip-hop activists as white activists invested in hip-hop who place a, quote, radical analysis of race at the forefront of their engagement with other social and political issues, end quote. Kitwana saw some white hip-hop activists coming to activism first and to hip-hop second. For others, he claims that hip-hop itself helps to radicalize them. I know that without my early experience with hip-hop, I wouldn't have been prepared for the activism I dove into in my college years. To keep with Bell Hook's theme, hip-hop undoubtedly helped me to love justice and to see the structures of power that often prevent it. Hip-hop helped me to start a path towards becoming an anti-racist educator. With that said, I don't center my first-year writing classroom on hip-hop. In the framework put forth by Mark Lamont Hill, my approach has always been more of a, quote, pedagogy with hip-hop, end quote, than a pedagogy about hip-hop. Yet, I'm also with Hill when he reminded us the pedagogies of hip-hop are crucial social theories worthy of the center of a contemporary writing curriculum aimed at helping students love justice. As he put it, quote, Pedagogies of hip-hop reflect the various ways that hip-hop culture authorizes particular values, truth claims, and subject positions while implicitly or explicitly contesting others. By framing these issues as fundamentally pedagogical, we become theoretically equipped to frame practitioners of hip-hop as engaged cultural workers, critical intellectuals, and public pedagogues whose intellectual production both reflects and constitutes a variety of identities, discourses, and power relationships. End quote. Put simply, Kendrick Lamar and all the other MCs making dope tracks are important social theorists to listen to. What's more, many of our students already are listening. Many of my students casually consume hip-hop on the regular. Most of the students on my campus are white like me, and many are coming from suburban Philadelphia families much like mine. I resemble the majority on my campus, and I want to invite these white students who casually consume hip-hop to learn to love justice through it. What's more, the more I've taught at Westchester, the more I feel it important to decenter whiteness in my writing curriculum. Not only do I want my students who love hip-hop to get a more critical lens for what it can do for them, but I want all my white students to have to contend with its insights. Perhaps even more importantly, I want my students of color to see theorizing from people who look like them at the center of the writing curriculum they experience in their first or second semester on campus. What I did. To that end, I've typically tried to orient my classroom room loosely around intersectional politics. I've done this to try to show students the interconnections between many different struggles, as well as to open the door for students to write about a wide variety of things that are important to them, 
I teach in a program that emphasizes rhetorical genre instruction in the context of a cultural studies framework. The genre framework encourages instructors to craft assignments in real-world genres so as to help students practice meeting a rhetorical situation with a rhetorical response appropriate to their goals. One caveat of the class is that at least one genre has to be a thorough analysis of some sort that approximates the careful moves expected of scholarly writing. I fulfill that requirement with a critical review patterned after a review of a book, movie, or other piece of culture. The cultural studies framework, on the other hand, is meant to enable the class to meet a general education diversity requirement at the school. And I take this as an invitation to center the class on anti-racism and feminist intersectionality. I've typically had students read and write a critical review of Martin Luther King's The World House essay from his Where Do We Go From Here? In the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement and Kendrick Lamar's new album dropping, I was inspired to revise my syllabus so as to make Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly album the theoretical centerpiece, replacing the World House as the text that students would deeply read and review. To get a deeper sense of that assignment, check the assignment sheet below. After working deeply through Kendrick's entire album and having students compose written reviews of the album, the class broke into groups for a collaborative final project that would focus on one track from the album to remix. I based this assignment loosely on the assignment that Mark Anthony Neal and Ninth Wonder did to have students create music videos for a track from Public Enemy's Fear of a Black Planet. I allowed students to choose the medium of their production, only asking that they extend Lamar's argument into a new context or a new audience. Check out the full assignment sheet below. How it went. To contend that this assignment sequence was an unmitigated success would be a lie. While I think most of my students, even the self-avowed hip-hop heads, came away with a deepened understanding of the political power Lamar was trying to communicate throughout the album, the writing and composing they engaged ultimately remained pretty safe. While students chose to focus on many different themes in Lamar's text, the religious undertones, the themes of addiction, colorism, police brutality, poverty, and overcoming adversity, I was struck by the ways that many students seemed intent on gearing their reviews to me as an audience. One day in class, we were discussing what I meant by the audiences that I asked them to write for in the assignment sheet. And I reminded them that it's a much different review if you're writing to people who think they hate hip-hop than if you're writing to people who are already fans. We discussed the rhetorical strategies you might employ in the introduction based on these different audiences. And a good majority of my students chose to take the strategy of writing to people who weren't fans of hip-hop. In doing so, they sought to convince their imagined audiences to listen to Lamar's album because it wasn't like all that other hip-hop that's so focused on drugs, guns, and women. I couldn't help but think back to that day in class where I suggested that writing to this audience might be a useful strategy. I also couldn't help but wonder what my students really thought of the album and its resonances in cultural life outside of their relationship to me as greater. What's more, 
despite the realness with which Lamar wrote of the hierarchical politics that resonate simultaneously in Compton, the music industry, and the larger United States, a great majority of students chose to focus their essays on the ways in which Lamar overcomes his adversity to still achieve greatness. These two strategies both set up Lamar as exceptional and participate in the bootstraps narrative that Lamar and other politically-minded rappers seek to undermine. In the collaborative final project, students largely chose to locate images that deepened the message of one of the songs on To Pimp a Butterfly, creating a music video that deployed Lamar's music with found images and created text to deepen the message in some way. The results were mixed. I couldn't help but feel the final assignment needed more time and more energy. As it worked out, students seemed to be tired of working with the same material for the second assignment. Rather than seeing it as a deepening of something they were interested in, as I'd hoped, many articulated a fatigue for working with the album again. As such, some of the pieces I received felt inspired, but many felt thrown together and piecemeal. Even though I'd required a storyboarding of the project to look at drafts, many students didn't take deep advantage of this opportunity to sketch and revise. As such, the transformative power of working with sound, text, and image together seemed squandered. How I'd Revise As I revise, I want to center the class in pedagogies with hip-hop even more fully. The solution I want to try is more hip-hop and more sound woven throughout. I am upset about the ways that students often framed Lamar as an exceptional figure in hip-hop. I am also bummed that students seemed tired of making with the same album by the end of that class. To that end, in this next iteration, I plan to introduce three albums instead of just Lamar. In addition to To Pimp a Butterfly, I'm going to introduce students to Rhapsody's older Thank Her Now album, as well as Odyssey's recent EP, Al Wasta. I want students to contend with the fact that Lamar ain't the only MC dropping knowledge, and I want them to have to think even more intersectionally than they seemed to by listening to only one album. I'm also hoping that by introducing three albums, it creates an ecology of sounds that will sustain their interest over the hall of the entire class. In addition to these albums, I'm going to tweak the process a little bit, too. So they don't feel the need they need to write for me to get a grade, I'm going to introduce a grading contract instead of a traditional point scheme. I'm also going to institute a more dialogic composing approach to students' work with the albums. Instead of my forcing of certain genres, I want to open the classroom up to an intellectual mixtape of response. I borrow this idea from both Adam Banks and David Green's work on sound pedagogy. The idea, as I'm shaping it now, would be that students will need to compose responses to what we're listening to, but they'll get to choose the medium, genre, and intended audience of their composition. They'll have to contend with summary and analysis, but on their own terms and always in audience-specific ways. What's more, I'm hoping to institute more ciphers into the class especially as students are composing early responses to the albums. These ciphers will ask students to share their responses in low-key competition for a class vote on whose response is the most powerful. 
Following green, I see the cipher, the hip-hop cipher, as a more powerful version of the writing workshop. So, in doing this cipher, we'll get to have more conversations about process, content, and rhetorical strategies, all while giving students more agency over what and how they write in my class. The solution is not to remove hip-hop from my syllabus, but to make the practices and ethos of hip-hop more deeply ingrained into the everyday activities of the class. Mixtapes of responses with liner notes, ciphers of responses to help students see other approaches, and an analysis essay that requires students to review one of the three albums in whatever modality they choose. Finally, I will dedicate more time to the final project. Rather than a throwaway, I want them to have time to make it deeply generative. I want to scaffold more sound writing skills and will happily be applying some insights I learned from the folks in this collection. But the final project will begin on day one and it will proceed from their own burning question. I borrow this approach from Muni Bruce Pratt who introduced me to the burning question approach to a writing workshop in her famed creative nonfiction Maymester class at Syracuse University back in 2011. They will set the question and let it be deepened, challenged, reframed by the hip-hop materials they encounter. The final product will be open to their making, but it will represent a culmination of the semester's work on the question not a fixed assignment demanding they choose one song to make a soundtrack to. Freedom School is hard work. In the midst of Black Lives Matter and a globally important hip-hop culture, sound writing is integral to Freedom School. But the sound writing is never more important than the Freedom School itself. I'm looking forward to this next chance to help my students and myself get more free. Hi, I'm Michael Burns, and I'll be introducing this conversation track. All's my life I has to fight, nigga. All's my life I hard times like yeah, bad trips like yeah, Nazareth. I'm fucked up, homie. You fucked up, but if God got us, then we gon' be alright. And when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me On for the first track, cut. we play a but clip from Kendrick Lamar's All Right, a song that has become a Black Lives Matter anthem, chanted at protests across the country. We start with Lamar's All Right, because all four of us taught with the song or with Lamar's 2015 To Pimp a Butterfly. Our conversation starts with Yanira. She has responded to Tim, who earlier in the conversation described the way that his students responded to Kendrick Lamar through the classroom discussion and assignments. In particular, he talks about how they gave him the response that he wanted. The conversation moves to discuss embodiment with myself and Tim adding in our experiences of teaching about race and with hip hop in the classroom. So I, I, wanted, I want the students to take me out of it, but in a different way, uh, mm-hmm. I guess. And, and I was thinking a lot through that um, seeming the presumed expertise, maybe that students uh, um, attribute to a, a, a person of color teaching about racism in a way ends up disc- 
ends up discrediting the the teacher. So the you. So you had students trying to do the what you wanted out of the assignment, and I had students just straight up resisting the assignment mm. as not. Mm. And and you know, and I had, you know, as I mentioned in, in my reflection, I had a like a my my more generous read about it was that we need to do more work to contextualize sound and 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 music as potential sites of analysis. Um, so that was my my more generous read. My you know my less generous read is. Uh, but there's a resistance here to to the actual content and what is challenging in terms of um, race um, and issues of racism, and and so I sort of wanted the students to write me out too, but from a different place and in a, in a place that didn't erase me though in the classroom, but from this different place where they 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 didn't uh, delegitimize the content based on the fact that they saw me as as um, presumably an expert and presumably too invested in it <laughs> to be mm-hmm. objective about it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't even want to use the word objective because, uh, you know, uh, you know, objectivity is... Yeah, credible. Uh, yeah, but right. not necessarily... Credible, but not necessarily a truth, you know. Um, and so I don't think that the way... And so this was a, a an issue that came up and I was and I really wanted to hear from all of you because... Uh, my, my response is not that you then try to like sort of present as more objective, but then but but what do you do? And so and, I, and so what I was doing was associating this with with um, banks hysteria on transaction uh, on access and mm-hmm. and thinking oh this also happens with content for certain teachers uh, transformational access has to relate to content because sometimes we want to teach a certain content. And we don't really have access to it in the you know in a way that students would be receptive to it because they're looking at the body, they're thinking the body's overly invested in these questions, and so there's a a rejection of the content. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if this came up for. Oh, yeah. I should I should I should say yes out loud instead of just nodding. And yeah. I'm interested in your classroom, Michael, because you're teaching uh, a senior seniors, right? So I wonder if yeah. it's a little different when you're teaching seniors and they've read more on like on the field and or. Yeah, I don't know. You know, it's it's a weird situation at Westchester. So the one time I I ran that 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 African American rhetoric course as a seminar. You want to get up? It um it's. The way they do the scheduling is that there are a whole bunch of these seminars that are on offer, and um, it's kind of political as to who gets the time slots that are going to be more, more, more um, uh, appealing in terms of enrollment, right? And it just so happened that that year, I'm the new guy, so they put me in a time slot that's appealing. So the folks that sign up aren't even necessarily signing up to the course uh. because of the topic. They're signing up because it's it fulfills a requirement in a time slot that fits the rest of their schedule. And it's not to say that everybody wasn't, right? There's a handful of kids that definitely showed up because of the content. But there's also some folks who just, you know <laughs> need the need the time and need the time slot. Mm-hmm. So that made it that made it a weird already. Um, and there's definitely kids that are invested. There's definitely kids that come in posing the question about what is this and what does it mean and are totally receptive and totally willing to take on 
whatever kind of work we do early on um, with the sociolinguistic aspect and with the history of language acquisition, right, and with the history of, of black English and language politics, and then totally embrace this Afrocentric approach to using um, a different theoretical framework to look at look at these texts. But then there's some that are just like, yo, this is hogwash, you know. And I don't, I mean, I don't know how to, I don't know how to challenge that. I don't even know if I have the energy to challenge that, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know if it's, I want to say my place, you know, but. Well, and just like I told you know, like you, just like I told Tim, like you know, there's you know, like, go get your so, sometimes go, go like go get your boy. Like this is where the this is where white privilege and, and whiteness as a particular positionality can do work in terms of challenging some of those attitudes, right? Right. Because um, there's just some, um, like you say, Yanira, there's just some. Sometimes if it just comes out, you know, if 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 the idea comes out of this mouth, it's attached to this particular body. Yeah. then it's already deemed invalid. Yeah, I'm thinking too about Ben. I mean, I know you and I, you and I, we get checked up in our evals about, you know, why does this whole thing have to be about race? But it's not to the level, obviously, that Yanira and Michael do. And I think what's interesting is that um, part of the white body at the front of the classroom uh, that I that I'm that I'm seeing through the way students reacted to Ben and my approach versus Yanira and Michael's is that when there's a white body in the classroom, it seems to to be easier for students to buy in to to buy in by treating it as a merely academic exercise, right? So like my students ended up dodging some of the deepest work by just kind of writing you know like a lot of them just said okay i'll write as if this essay is to an audience that doesn't like hip-hop and i'm just trying to show them that kendrick's all right right that kendrick's different from the rest and that emerged out of like a moment of confusion when we were discussing the assignment sheet and i was like well put it like this this is why there's different audiences like has anybody read the source you know magazine and nobody had Right? And I was like, well, put it like this. If there's a crew that listens to hip-hop on the daily, they want to hear something different about the album than if there's a pe- person that's completely shut off to hip-hop because they think they hate it for whatever reason. So imagine the people in your life and try to write something that will enliven them to let them see that they need to hear this message for some reason or another. Mm -hmm. And then they turned that into many of them, too many of them, turned it into a merely academic exercise to to put it in its place. And it makes me think of the white habitus that we've been thinking about, Michael, and some of our other work Mm -hmm. about the ways that the white habitus says, okay, well, if we're going to deal with diverse texts, um, we'll keep them in their place by, you know, by dissecting them as a merely academic exercise, right? right? Done at certain times in certain places, completely mm-hmm. balkanized, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so, ghettoized. Yeah, exactly. And so when when white dudes do it, they're like, all right, this is like the the, the saw that this cat's riding on. So I'm all right with that, and I'll just like 
minimize it by making it just mm-hmm. academic. Mm-hmm. Whereas your bodies read as political already, so that's an impossible response. So what does whiteness do there? It's just outright rejection. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, dig the heels in because there's nowhere to slip out. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut. Bahamas, I be looking at you from the face down. One Mac 11 even room with the face down. This is track two, and you're listening to the Coo's Strange Arithmetic, a song that Yanira used to open up her class. Instead of maintaining an unjust status quo, making students into victims, the Coo calls on teachers to tell us how to flip this system. In this track, we use our experiences teaching with hip-hop to theorize about the place of hip-hop as content and or theory in a composition classroom. Yanira opens with questions that give the track its title, Did We Move a Bit? In other words, did teaching with these sounds make space for our students to understand such political music as credible content in the writing classroom? Michael jumps in with a yes, talking about the surprise many students have when they encounter hip-hop in a political vein, or even re-listen to mainstream hip-hop using an Afrocentric rhetorical lens. This leads me to reflect about the importance of how we frame hip-hop as a text in the class, and leads to a discussion about how we engage the different levels of listening that students will often bring into the classroom. Economics is a symphony of hunger and theft. Mortar shells often echo out the cashing of checks. In geography classes, borders, mountains, and rivers, but they will never show the line between the takers and givers. Algebra is that unique occasion in which a school can say that there should be a balanced equation. And this statistics is the tool of the complicitous that everybody's with it. And you're the only critic and I'm teaching. My is up. I'll put this to to all of you. Did teaching with sound, and particularly like teaching with uh, to pimp a butterfly with hip hop, um, you know, Michael, the, the songs you picked, the Lauren Hill, which I, I was that's excellent. I played some Lauren Hill in my classroom as well. Did do you feel that 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 in terms of the outcome of the course, did that create more of a space for this kind of material or this kind of content to keep being taught? in the classroom in terms of the reception like did we move a little bit <laughs> did uh, oh. any of you feel like we moved a little bit where people that you had students feeling like oh okay i could see another class like this happening with this kind of content or oh for sure yeah, yeah. and i think like uh, i mean the mainstream orientation to hip-hop music in particular is all through the commercial vein right mm-hmm. like this there's no ready access to hip-hop that's engaging in any kind of political work unless you know where to go if yeah. you're not looking for it you're not going to find it mm-hmm. and that's that's intentionally so so mm-hmm. like they're um you know uh surprised you know um that there's this orientation that there's another another uh uh 
space for content and another space for political identifications and resistance that exists within that form that they don't get if they're only listening to, you know, I don't want to name names, but commercial radio. Right. 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 Um, and so then what happens and so that's interesting so I mentioned the Childish Gambino one right mm-hmm. um, so then what, this kid loves Donald Glover and is listening to Childish Gambino but he's listening to it from a, a Eurocentric orientation he's listening to it from a commercial perspective he goes back and reads it through you know through the Kawaita perspective and is saying oh wait a minute there's something else that's going on Right, so he's starting to see that there's actual the, the, just the, the theoretical lens as it, as it changes, and therefore even the text itself then takes on different meaning, and he can see that there's some political efficacy even in this stuff that may be deemed as commercial at first glance. Right, mm-hmm. so it's I think if if but that's just a matter of the kid. I mean, it could be my delivery, it could be the way I present it that makes them receptive to it, but. Um, the the whole thing that like we have these particular rhetorical traditions that we're beholden to that emanate out of this 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 Eurocentric trajectory, right? Um, for better or for worse, um, as um, not arbitrary but political, and also there's no it, it there's no uh, other than the fact that there's a power there's a power play at work it there's really no good reason that <laughs> this stuff is what what's on the plate most of the time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, right. It just so happens to be that's, that's just the stuff that got picked up and got carried on. So they start to see that, okay, wait a minute, there's, there, there are other, there are, you mean there are other rhetorical traditions that have other values and that, that, that have other priorities that, that then facilitate a completely different understanding of the text. And so... Um, I don't even think it matters necessarily that it's that it's African to them sometimes, just that it's different and they understand that, that there are implications to the theoretical perspectives, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, does it make them, and if it winds up making them more perspective to, to, to black culture and to hip hop in particular, then that's cool too. Mm-hmm. But, right. but that they start to, you know, that they definitely recognize that is there's always going to be something political with the language practices and even the way we start to understand them or we interpret them. Or the theory that we use too, and that's that's productive as well. I think. That's mm-hmm. one of the things, Michael. I really appreciate about your assignment was how clearly you lay out African rhetorical practice, and so they have to go through and look. Their analysis is guided in this way. Yeah. And I was thinking a little bit about Tim's assignment, where it seems to be about, and you could talk more about it, using to pimp a butterfly as theory, like as mm-hmm. as a text that's on the same level as any other text that we would use in the classroom and then I was thinking about when I had framed in my class my class was around political rhetoric using To Pimp a Butterfly for a Week as one of the texts that we were looking at as a piece of disruptive political rhetoric but I was so I had students, some white students in the class that like one for example was always running she said to Kendrick Lamar's to Pimp a Butterfly that was like her running album you know and you know what I could kind of read from her politically was that I don't think that she was really in line either politically or culturally with to Pimp a Butterfly but it was like different than a text that you would read right when you're reading a text it's like if you don't agree with the message of it then you just drop it right but if you're listening to something that has lyrics and sound, you can be into it without 
being into the message or even knowing what the message of it is. And so then that I had some students that were kind of like into the music, but weren't really clued into what the message of the music was. Mm-hmm. But then putting the frame of like, we're going to look at disruptive political practice and so then they had to read these songs in a different way. And so for some students, they were reading songs that they had, they already liked in this one way, but didn't understand in this other way. Mm-hmm. And so I'm thinking about that. Yeah. Maybe it, maybe it, part of what I'm thinking about is the power of how, how do you frame um, the use of hip-hop or of sound music as text in your classroom mm-hmm. and how that determines what, um, you know what what students end up getting out of it in a way that's going to be different than a text that they'll read. Yeah, you make me you make me think too of the, the like um, of the uh, the distinction between consuming it and actually like listening as a critical listening as a critical mm-hmm. practice, right? Um, you, the, the student you describe is is really just engaged in an act of consumption, so she's hearing it, but she's not listening mm-hmm. to it. Um, and I think that, that that's 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 a practice for a lot of the music, especially hip hop, right? Like you talk about divesting from like there's a particular um, uh, emotional or pathetic response to it, um, but the critical engagement is not there in terms of actually listening. To, like, God forbid if they listen to the lyrics of some of this shit, then they would like it wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Like, the the industry would shut down, you know, like mainstream radio would totally shut down if people really listened to the words. I I think, I don't know. Um, I mean, I would like to think that that's the case. Like, it's just a matter of of how how the listeners are engaging or how they're positioning. There's no agency in the in the act of listening. There's a passivity and a consumption, which goes, gets to the point of capitalism, right? Like there's a consumerist capitalist attitude in terms of the way they drink up or imbibe or consume the music, as opposed to it always already be positioned as uh, in the cipher, yeah. so that they, as 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 listener, is also a critic and 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 positioned yeah. to respond to it actively, right? Yeah. Um, what can I make with this? How do I respond? Right. I'm called to respond. Yanita here. The intro song for this track is Ms. Lauren Hill's Black Rage Sketch. Michael describes the song in his reflection, noting how it demonstrates the terms of Molana Karenga's African rhetorical practice with its rhetoric of possibility, reaffirmation, rhetoric of community, and rhetoric of resistance. In this track, Michael and I go back and forth about how to avoid a multicultural approach, one that is described in some detail in Ben's reflection through the work of Vijay Prashad. This connects to other tracks where Tim begins a conversation around avoiding comfortable, schooled responses to race and racism. When the dogs bite, when the bees sing, when I'm feeling sad, I simply remember all these kinds of things, and then I don't feel so bad. 
Black rapes founded, fed us self-hatred, lies and abuse. While we waited and waited, spiritual treason, this grid and its cages. So I left with this question, like, I, do I teach a class that I'm trying to teach about racism and not say the class is about racism? <laughs> because, um, because that's an issue in itself, the, you know, that... And what I was left thinking, what ways does hip hop or songwriting then become a dance around the actual thing that you want to and that and the danger of like not just saying this is a class about race and racism in the US and then we could use these tools to talk about that to to always sort of so and then there, and there's a tension there, right? Because there's the, 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 the two things is that they're either gonna shut down because you're being really direct about the thing, but if you're not then then there's gonna be this possibility of um so, you know, one thing about your course, Michael, that, you you know, you're you're grounding it on Smitherman's work. And and I'm thinking that is so powerful because I did pieces like Sherman Alexie's piece, Gloria Saldua's piece, um, mm-hmm. June Jordan. And because the, you know, those pieces allowed for like more of that multi multicultural approach to text that mm-hmm. allowed students to write themselves in relation to these issues in, in a way that was more comfortable. Um and and so I was left thinking really a lot about what does it mean to try and and, and like teach with hip hop about race and racism and and justice without really sort of foregrounding that, um, which I thought Michael, you're at least the 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 text you used to frame the class did a little bit more of that um, in some ways. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the language, the the the, the language, uh, foundational stuff helps a lot. You know, um, like there's, um, and I guess I should be used to this by now. But you know, um, you know, this notion of black people speaking bro- broken English is like still like a pretty prevalent idea, even among you know senior level English majors. Right. And so to kind of start to deconstruct that and be like, well, no, actually, no, it's systematic. And actually, like there are particular, you know, historical and social uh, factors that lead to the language uh, being constructed the way it is. And like kind of getting into it a little bit like is really um, I mean, I think it's good fruit for those kids. But because so then it it um, it starts to. uh make it apparent that okay wait there's something else that's going on here it isn't just that like th- so then that that the language is so distinct also then reinforces the idea that the culture is also distinct and that there's some really really different ways that black folks people of african descent and people of european descent have been enculturated into american society and so mm-hmm. then from there then um it's it's a little bit easier to say okay right just and but just because there is a difference at a cultural level doesn't necessarily mean that one is better than another. So then, where does the power come into play? Then mm-hmm. why is there still a difference then? Or why is it that you know the the, the one or two black kids in the class who do speak black English like have been um, you know uh, made to feel like shit because of the way they talk, right? Or they deny their their cultural background, or deny their their history, or deny their the home language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, in that way, it's really productive. It, it, to connect, connect it to hip hop, then I think hopefully it gives them some historical context for why what why the music is the way it is and why it does what it does. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, back to the earlier point, what's flowing in the mainstream 
and and really the practices of actually you know engaging those mainstream texts or, con, or consuming that mainstream music mm-hmm. facilitates the multiculturalist stuff that you're talking about. You know, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, that I, in a predominantly white institution, I, I'm still struggling with the frames because it's still sort of then. So, you know, my approach was try to sort of break down writing as as um, the only form or the only communicative practice, right? And then, and maybe having everybody see how they have home languages, but then like that really sort of, again, created that multicultural approach where we, well, we all have home languages and it's all, you know, that like, uh, back to Keith Gilliard's point of like, um, sameness of difference models, right, when it comes to trans being translingual. Every, so people were really mm-hmm. comfortable with that. So my, the thing that I'm struggling with is inviting students in because I'm in a predominantly white classroom and I don't want to create a scenario where I'm teaching about, uh, or that I'm, you know, that we're engaging in these texts and we're we're as if we're talking about an other over there that we're studying. Um, in other words, how do I understand? Help everybody understand that we're all implicated in these conversations, and that it's not just that we're talking about African American vernacular English over there as this other thing that we study, or hip hop as this thing that that is happening over there, or racism as this thing that's happening over there. Um, so trying to get everybody sort of implicated in the classroom and at the same time avoid that sort of multicultural sort of sense of, or that sameness of difference model um, that, that co- sort of comes up. This is Tim Doherty. The intro song for this track is Odyssey's 2015 Belong to the World, a song that on the surface is about breaking free of boxes, but also about ways of finding deeper belonging and connection as an immigrant. I plan to use this song and Odyssey's album The Good Fight in my upcoming classes, in part to open up conversations around immigration. In this track, we draw on David Green's work that reimagines classroom practice as a cipher. We start by making distinctions between the cipher as a generative practice of accountable response to classmates as fellow makers, and the typical writing prompts we ask for, like the academic essay, as schooled responses that often position students as detached armchair critics, less accountable to the readings and less accountable to each other as makers. Not a 
nothing too much change. Shooting strings and we accord in the middle. Forever lost in the process, two between. Somebody asked, what do you claim? I belong to the world. But the other thing I want to ask is, what type of genres are we asking students to respond in? Because schooled responses, and this is why I'm so tired of this. Like, schooled responses are made to say, I need to find a thing to critique about it, Mm -hmm. right? Like, I wonder about, like, a cipher where it's like, the, the audience is our class, and the most powerful response wins, Right and gets to gets to choose the next type of response we're gonna do right so that it's not about who can better critique some stupid thing about it mm-hmm. to show that they did the school thing, mm-hmm. yeah. but it's about like being together and making something. Mm-hmm. So back to yeah. these creative process, like these creative practices, and back to like um, Michael, the sort of theories of possibility that come off of like African mm-hmm. rhetoric. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was. And that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, and and sorry. Yeah, and that move too. Then, uh, it 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 facilitates the cipher, right? Like it it doesn't let you off the hook in terms of where your criteria comes from. So if the criteria is generative, mm-hmm. then you know we we're we're then we're already positioned as informed listeners and not passive, right? But the listening becomes an active or the the reception. Or the the like through becoming an interlocutor at that particular point. Mm-hmm. So you there's an exchange that's taking place, and the text only means because of the way we decided we we're going to listen to it. Right. Right. So then that that rules out the the passive consumption or the commodification of the text, regardless of what it's offering. Right. So that's then right. so then. So it's almost, that's interesting. So you just flipped the script on that then. So it didn't even have to do necessarily with what particular text we present. It has to do with what type of ways we're encouraging students to read the text that's all that's really more important. And how does school position us as armchair critics that aren't actually engaging, that we're just like passively writing it off or writing, but if we position it as a cipher that you have to generate something, right. like what comes next? Right. That seems like if we approach it as makers rather than critics, that's, that's right. a whole different bowl of wax. That's right. That's right. Right. That's I mean, right. I guess I want to challenge because because uh, sound writing, right? Like responding to this call, it's about uh, using engaging in a practice. But it's a, so I guess I mean the reason I brought it up is because in, in, again, turning to to practices. Uh, so yes, like I'm all for that. Absolutely. Like let's have different practices in the classroom, and and you know, and yet we we all sort of had a a little moment of thinking about sound writing as a practice and thinking, but wait, because practices can still sort of take on the dominant logic and the dominant, particularly because of the structure we're working under, right? Because we're working in the the academy and it's like, you know, I mean, I guess to to Carmen Kennard's point, we either have to foreground a different history to the academy um, before engaging in certain practices and then... um, to Adam Banks's point, like what these, like not allowing these practices to become the the next capitalist commodity, the next capital hotness, the the the, the next, you know, the next thing that you can abstract and reduce, um, and reproduce, right? Um, and the and the one thing that I could think of that sort of resists that is having those really uncomfortable conversations that like put us in that have us all kind of like try in the messy funky of it, right? Because we can't we can't settle so easily. You need to ask Tim to explain more about the cipher in the classroom, especially as a replacement for the writer's workshop. 
So for instance, like to Michael's point, this idea that when we talk about who's going to win the cipher, we have a we we have these framing conversations about okay, so if we all agree that this is about getting free, what do we agree like do so and we just read some black feminist work about framing the fact that until black women are free, until uh indigenous folks are free, right? Nobody's free, right? And so if we agree that that's a value of our cipher, right? That the response should be generative to move towards freedom. Like, do we all agree that? Okay, we all agree that. Do we then agree to this, right? That that until the least, until the those currently furthest from freedom are 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 free, then none of us are free. Can we go there, right? Like this sense of like, it's like uh, y'all were talking with Ira Shore about this. That it's about testing the limits of of how free people want to get, right? And making that decision together. But the, the, to to your point, Yanira, and your question, I've found the only time that I've used the cipher with depth was in an elective at Syracuse in a style class. And I made the whole thing about cipher with style play. And it was fabulous the best class i ever taught by far and it's hard for me to disambiguate whether that's because they were all writers Mm. that were psyched about it and committed right because when i tried to drop a cipher on the class um in this semester with the kendrick lamar stuff folks were just like nah not gonna happen and part of it i think was because i was trying to cipher in this limited way of like let's cipher our summaries Whereas in the style class, it was always about the power of what's your response, what's your generation, what's your contribution to, okay, we're all working on repetition, anaphora, whatever. Who did the best anaphora, right? And like that sense of like that playful little, it was, it was competitive, but it was playful and it was joyous. And it took us to really interesting political conversations about the politics of language and why folks win or why folks want to share certain things or don't want to share certain things. But it, it, it was the first time that I had people having those conversations about each other's writing instead of about the text we were reading. Mm-hmm. And, and there was an investment there that was different. It was just mm-hmm. fundamentally different. And it's like this elusive mountaintop moment for me that I'm like how do I capture that in a first year writing class and it might not be possible to the extent that it was in the majors elective class but I think part of it could be that if we flip the script on what writing is right out the gate and say like look you need to respond in a way that's trying to get us more free in response to Kendrick Lamar or Odyssey or Rhapsody or Jesse Williams speech or whatever right the black lives matter platform website right your response has to the the goal is to we come back to the cipher who can help us get more free mm-hmm. right and it doesn't matter what your response looks like and then we decide like i'm interested to see what that would yeah. do mm-hmm. um, that's and great it, it seems to know. challenge like uh Feels anti-capitalist in a way, like in a really interesting way. In that, like, it's affirming, uh, not affirming of um, the product, but of like the the potential to create. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, not yeah. affirming of the thing you read, but the potential to like it's 
the self-affirming aspect of it. So it's not this this other thing. It's not this competition for this, you know, and this other thing out there. But like self-affirmation feels important in that in that practice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah, I would. I would. I think I totally would like to try that in the classroom. I mean, and yeah, and, uh, conversations about sort of audience about. Um, that's that's come up for me. Um, how how do we best reach these audiences? How do you best? Um, I think that that could be really wonderful too. And getting at like the genius, the the absolute genius of these texts, like of these like hip hop texts or sound writing texts. Um, yeah, because it's like I'm responding to this, and I don't want. It, so some students will be safe and play a summary, and then like there's a, I've had MCs in every one of my classes at Westchester, and some are gonna try, mm-hmm. like they're gonna try to put a verse down, mm-hmm. you know. And then it's like then students are watching their peer try to do what Kendrick did or Rhapsody does, and being like, whoa, that's hard, right? Because I see you as somebody that's pretty good, and like, whoa. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> um, yeah, and it's, it, does, it, it does this thing of like uh, the hierarchies of skills when it comes to like the um, mm-hmm. writing then shift mm-hmm. quite a bit. So that's pretty interesting. That's the other thing. And that's the thing. That's the thing that struck me when David Green, when I first heard David Green talk about this, like the writing workshop as a cipher, because like, so the cipher has always been about building chops. Right, it's always the playful competition to build your chops for for the album or for the mixtape or you know. But the cipher is like a lived, embodied. We're all in the circle, pushing each other because we all care about each other, building our craft. Right, and that's the spirit I want to capture in a writing class. Like I can't Mm -hmm. think of a better way to frame what I want to happen in a writing class. And so often my students like. The audience problem of the writing class is because it's so fake. And I've been trying to like think, like innovate these like convoluted ways for them to imagine audiences that they can care about. And like it's just hit me that like what David is talking about with the cipher is that like you make the workshop so intensely community norm about what's generative and what's powerful mm-hmm. that like the audience is there now. Mm-hmm. Right. But the only way to do that is to, is if everybody feels like they get to make the shit they want to make right. and try to make it better. Right. So, Michael, how does this, like, uh, you know, you've mentioned, like, how does, uh, you know, this idea of, like, working with these elements in a predominantly white classroom, right? Like, you know, how, they, how you, I, I think at some point you mentioned, yeah, well, like, we, we're in a, in a structure that they love black genius, but not, the bodies aren't there, you know, like, so that you end up with things like the mixtape and the, you know, so how do, how do we conceive of using these practices, but, but like, avoiding that kind of outcome, I guess? Yeah, that's a good problem. I don't know, mm-hmm. you know? I'm trying to picture myself pulling this off, Tim. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I think we all have to do it together. And that's wondering, a lesson. And wondering, you know, wondering what it looks like, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't know.
We had planned to introduce this track with Hell You Tom About, a song released by Janelle Monet and the Wonderland Collective. It is a song that lists the names of black people killed by police and vigilantes in the United States. But after I cut one version of this track with Hell You Tom About for the introduction, it felt wrong to fade out the song for a discussion about pedagogy. Even if a connection could be made, this isn't a song to fade out. It feels too real and necessary to play in part. In the question of how to use sound writing in the classroom, we've discovered our own complications using sound. How do we honor contexts and history? How do we honor the urgency of social movements? How do we honor the fact that many names, most recently Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, and Corinne Gaines, must be added to this list? By using the song, are we circulating an important political message or turning an important political message into an academic object? And, as we discuss and reflect on these complex and important questions, our due date for the project drifts further into the past. The need to finish our own sound writing products comes into tension with our need to be accountable to movement work inside and outside of the classroom. In the end, we've decided that instead of playing the song here as introduction, we will invite listeners to go find the track, available free on SoundCloud, and to listen or re-listen to it with their full attention on the music and message. In our final track, Yanir asks who did sound writing in their classrooms. I respond, followed by Michael, Yanir, and Tim, all talking about assignments, complications, and outcomes. So who actually produced a, a podcast in their class? I guess what did some what did folks assign, <laughs> or how did it go? Or I'm interested in that. I think that I was I'm I think the four, uh, the four of us I had students actually produce podcasts, and then Michael has podcasts as a option in a class that hasn't run yet, right? That's right. Um, so. But I don't know. You want me to talk about how it went? I want to talk about the potential of that kind of... Like, that was something I was really curious about. I mean, I didn't end up producing podcasts with my students. There was an assignment that was a bit different than anything I've done. So I thought... I gave all of my students an A on the podcast, just across the board. And so... And I was more or less explicit about it in the class. was like, I just want you to look at a song analyze it for its political disruption and just like I want to listen to it in the car on my way back from Pennsylvania to New York and I want to enjoy it and I want to give you all A's and that was kind of my way of setting it up it wasn't a high stakes thing that they were producing and I thought that that was kind of important I was like it was more a process and then when Tim when you were talking about the cipher and you were talking about like the academic mode is critique and I was thinking about Michael's assignment, and I was thinking about the way that I had framed it, where it wasn't about critique. It was about, can you, where do you notice the political disruption in this song? Or, you know, it was like Michael's, where are you identifying these criteria of uh, African rhetorical practice in these songs? And so it's like, that kind of analysis was more about, like, understanding and a deeper reading of the text instead of critique of them and so 
And since mine was around political rhetoric instead of, it wasn't around, it wasn't just limited to hip-hop, it was political rhetoric, and they could pick whatever music they wanted, but I gave a long list of examples. And so they were listening to, like, Credence Clearwater and, you know, reading up about the Vietnam War. They were listening to Green Day's American Idiot and learning about the United States under the Bush administration, which was, like, an event long in the past for most of my students. And I could I could feel and and hear the deeper engagement with the music, the listening instead of consuming that was happening. So I was really heartened by that. And I'm going to do it again with changes. I think of making sure that all of my students have the same access to it and using the classroom more as like a thinking of the classroom from certain moments as like sound booth and like let's just do all of the work in the classroom together instead of you can go off with your laptop and all of the frustrations that arise and then maybe like you know I had people coming to my office the week before finals week and it's due in 24 hours and they like still haven't been able to figure out how to work it on their computer because they've they've got a glitchy microphone or something you know technologies are presented to us as if they're this democratizing force in society they're sold to us that way and then realizing in the classroom how okay I was moving away from this academic essay which was supposedly this oppressive force and then i'm switching all of a sudden now we're doing podcasting and the 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 technological gap that that meant for some people meant that all of the structural uh the systemic um hierarchies that come through were again exposed because it was like oh i've I've got to borrow a laptop from the library and then i can't download it because of the program because of this access or like I'm working on this old loner computer that doesn't have a microphone that works and so this was not a without a lot of work it is definitely not a democratizing genre it's not a democratizing genre on its own to just say oh we're doing podcasts and aren't you all glad Mm, yeah that's that's thanks to material access is emerging there again I mean you know in the time that he wrote it it I just had to deal with getting a computer. Now, mm-hmm. there's, it's more nuanced when we're asking them to perform particular tasks with computers that are beyond just mm-hmm. composing writing, right? Mm-hmm. I know what it reveals. In terms of web-based type, type-based composition, and you know, we're moving into another, another mm-hmm. whole realm. And then the experiential is the next stage then. Now that you have it and it works then, like, do you have, are you familiar with it? Can you make it do what you need it to do, right? Yeah, like, I love that that analysis gets applied transnationally, like, oh, folks in other countries don't have, and I'm like, that's actually yeah. happening right here. <laughs> that's not, yeah, right. it's not just a transnational experience that, mm-hmm. you know, and actually could be very reductive about sort of, about how we perceive a transnational and like the people in other countries and technology. Um, so that's a really interesting. I guess I was asking because you know, um, Tim, you were you were talking a lot about sort of the summary and the, and the critical summary um, as one of the things that you assigned, um, and um, thinking about sort of what people did in the classroom and wanting to know. At some point, I had my students translate some of the readings into a political poster, you know, moving moving from one, one unit to the next into a visual. And the, 
you know, and I guess what I, where I ended up was that it wasn't just like sound writing that I was getting at, but like how do we like just get genres to look at different genres to to disrupt the essay as the par- or the central genre, and, um, and then sound writing fitting into that whole mess, right? <clears throat> so we're not replacing one with the other. And I guess from what you said, Ben, the the sound booth sounds exciting. Like the idea of working with podcasts from the get and now that's some final assignment sounds really exciting. Yeah. That's what I found with my multimodal assignment too, which was the final assignment, is that one, students were spent by the end. It's like, you know, they're making it around Thanksgiving and they're just like, you want me to do what? And so my response was, well, okay, well, I'll offer more of a smorgasbord, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be just one album. Mm -hmm. And that's why I love, Ben, your assignment, where it's like, find a song, Mm -hmm. right? It's all folk music, right? As Hooray for the Riff Raff and Louis Armstrong remind us, right? Mm -hmm. Louis says, ain't never heard no horse sing a song, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know? And so positioning hip-hop as folk music, right? Um, And this sense of, this sense of, uh, you know, that sense of everybody can find the political disruption in here. I love how pointed your prompts were, both Michael's and Ben's, as you mentioned, Ben. And um, mine ended up being like a complete joke, the multimodal piece. I was trying to replicate what Mark Anthony Neal and Ninth Wonder did um, by saying, you know, pick, pick an album or pick a song off the album and extend that argument of that song through the visual, through written, through your voice, however you want to do. And what folks ended up doing is like they did it as groups and, you know, it ended up almost without fail. There was like one leader in the group that had a vision and they went and found a bunch of pictures on the internet and just played the song over it. And it became like a remixed music video, but it didn't have the teeth that the Duke University one had because they were working with archivists and special collections librarians at Duke, right? Mm-hmm. So the images that the students had access to the night before as they were trying to get it done in between the job that they're working and the other five classes they're taking, right. it just didn't have the same. Mm-hmm. It felt slapped together. Mm-hmm. And so and it makes me think that we need to have the cutting room, right? The videography and the, like sifting through the pictures, that needs to happen in the class. Just like the sound booth happens, has to happen in the class. Uh, and, and, and I need to figure out how I can actually facilitate that work because I'm not that good at it. Yeah, yeah. there's got to be some kind of way where we, we actually bridge that, that material gap and experiential gap to... Because, mm-hmm. I mean, we want them to engage the text critically, right? So I don't know how much is it, you know, is it necessary? I mean, getting back to the embodiment, right? It's necessary that they actually spend the time on the task and get their hands dirty and actually do the digging to a certain extent. But we got to support them in that, too, mm-hmm. right? so that they don't become frustrated and it just becomes, you know. Another task. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or, or like the product without the understanding, which is I think where like Yanir had kind of left her reflection was if you jump to producing the thing when you haven't had students even take the the album seriously or the, or the topic seriously. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, at that point, I sort of like followed Adam Banks' advice, and I'm like, okay, the we're not, the podcast is not going to be of service here, um, just as a podcast without if we if we've sort of like. I think we need to just keep engaging with this and like really address the fact like what are these resistances, what's happening, you know, that the ideas felt more important at that point than just producing a neat podcast on something. Um, and and so I ended up there and, I, you know, ultimately, I, you know, it was it was joyful for me to teach with sound. I mean, it was different. It was just like, and I, I want to sort of, I do want to hold on to that because it was, it created a different classroom regardless, and I, and I think, and in some ways opened up really, you know, great conversations, important tensions, I thought. Um, you know, because I, I was rethinking a lot, like thinking that maybe those were those were failures, but, you know, I ended up thinking like, oh, well, my, my goal wasn't really to get them to, to, everybody to just fall in love with this album, like that really wasn't it, you know, um, uh, or to try and convince, but to like sort of, you know, open up important conversations and like just see something. 